You are listening to the Health and Wellness Connection Podcast, the number one wellness podcast designed to provide the latest information to help you achieve your health and wellness goals. Our show features exciting guests, the latest in medical research, and in-depth discussions in current trends on weight loss, nutrition, and fitness. No matter what your interest, the Health and Wellness Podcast has you covered. And now, presenting your illustrious host, Dr. Barry, M.D. to a new and fresh episode of the Health and Wellness Connection podcast. We're here to hopefully bring you exciting and pertinent information, some of the latest research that is hot off the presses regarding some of the new developments, new research, um, kind of new um, information in the health and wellness arena. I'm your host, Dr. Barry. I've been here for years now, giving you the content, and we'll continue to. Um, We're just excited to be here again. Now, I will admit this has been a slower news month, so we've been kind of bunching up the articles into episodes to kind of keep the episodes dense with information. Um, but yes, uh, we are here and we are um, hopefully going to give you some things that will, you know, maybe change your mindset a bit. Before we get into that, though, I want to let you guys know where you can find me. I am Dr. Barry um, Iruk. I am a health and wellness physician as well as an emergency medicine physician and, you know, basically dedicated to making sure we try to provide information for those who are interested in learning more about health and wellness. Of course, we focus on research, evidence-based info. We don't just kind of talk out of our behinds here. And ideally, you know, if you do hear something that may be inaccurate, please feel free to reach out to us. Again, um, I am available on Instagram at Dr. Barry md um, also you can email me at drberryhealth at gmail.com and that's b-a-r-r-y d-r-b-a-r-r-y h-e-a-l-t-h at gmail.com all right guys so let's dive right in we have quite a few stories to get into so let's start so the first story that came across my desk that kind of really made me a bit interested was a new study showing that magnesium rich diets are actually linked to a lower risk of dementia so we all know that dementia is a, is a condition that's known to affect us as we age. Um, essentially involves the brain not being able to process memories as effectively as it once could. Therefore, you're forgetting things. You may forget who your own you know, families are, where you live. And it can be very devastating to those who suffer from it. So we've never really understood what causes dementia. We've had our thoughts, even though we do know, do to, we do know now that certain conditions like strokes or other potential issues with your metabolism and your overall body health can lead to dementia. And we're seeing now more and more that nutrition deficiencies are a big potential um, predicting factor for developing dementia at a later stage in life. So one study just showed that magnesium deficiency may also be a significant reason why people can develop dementia. So making sure that magnesium levels are appropriate can help reduce that. Now this study that recently came out came out of Australia. And um, there are local researchers out there, specifically Dr. Kalawa Atik. I always try to say these docs, but sometimes the pronunciations are hard. But anyways, Dr. Atik, Al, Dr. Alatik, um, apparently out of the Australian National University National Center of Epidemiology and Population Health, 
they're doing a study where they looked at over 6,000 cognitively healthy individuals, right, between the ages of 40 and 73, and found that those who consume more than 550 milligrams of magnesium per day had a brain age that was about one year younger by the age 55. So basically their brains age slower when they had a magnesium rich diet. Now for the record, normal magnesium intake is about 360 milligrams per day. That's the general recommended. These people were consuming 550 milligrams per day. And they found that again, their brains were aging slower. Now, as far as the reasons behind this, um, it's believed that magnesium, you know, may help the brain operate more efficiently. Um, it also is believed that potentially, you know, I guess puts less stress on the brain. And it's, you know, it's just kind of theories that are being postulated, but we do see that magnesium has been extremely effective or may have a potential role in helping people reduce dementia. Now, one thing we did see and that we do know about magnesium is that it lowers blood pressure. And we know that magnesium, we know blood pressure is a big cause of dementia because we know people who have chronically high blood pressure, they're increased risk of strokes and brain injury over time, which ultimately can lead to dementia. So blood pressure control has been really important in general, just for overall health, but especially when it comes to brain health. And there's some researchers that believe that this magnesium um, supplementation will help with that blood pressure regulation, which will overall help reduce brain injury over time. So um, ultimately, for those who are looking at magnesium supplementation out of, outside of taking pills, you know, I'm a big fan of natural sources of food, natural sources of, of, of medication, including fruits and vegetables, of course. Now, Pacific fruits and vegetables that are high in magnesium include leafy green vegetables, nuts, seeds, whole grains. So if you're on a whole food diet, you're getting plenty of magnesium. As I told you, whole food should be looked at as medicine, right? If you want to stay healthy, you got to eat healthy items so that your body can function at its top level. Clearly, magnesium, as well as other nutrients that we're going to discuss, are very important in that. And so ensuring that you're eating those whole, those leafy green vegetables, um, things that are filled with, you know, good nutrients is the best way to ensure you're going to be, um, you know, reducing the risk of disease over the long period of time. Now, again, this study looked at 550 milligrams per day. Um, and that was what they felt would be, um, I guess this is what the numbers have shown on their study that was correlated with decreased brain age over time. So again, this is just, you know, one study, although it's a very, um, I think it's a very well done study. They really talk about, you know, how magnesium potentially could be beneficial. And then they show the numbers of showing those magnesium rich patients having, um, healthier, younger looking brains. So, I think if you're already eating a whole food diet, just continue doing it. It's more confirmation that making sure we're getting those high levels of nutrient-rich foods, in this case, specifically magnesium-rich foods, can be very helpful in reducing brain age and brain injury over time. And again, foods that are great sources of magnesium include spinach, almonds, cashews, yogurt, brown rice, avocados. You see that? So natural, healthy foods. So again, another study confirming the benefits of high nutrition when it comes to preventing long-term health problems. All right. Now, another study that's also on the same vein, this actually uh, pulled out of CNN Health, which is actually a great source for health information, guys. If you want to, you know, catch up with some of the health info and you want to, you know, do it quickly, CNN Health is actually a pretty good source of information. Now, 
one of the new studies that came out published um, this past week in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition showed that adults who took one multivitamin each day for three years had a mild improvement in their memory after one year compared to those taking placebo. So uh, placebo is like a sugar pill. It doesn't really do anything. But essentially, the multivitamin per day group, they had actually improvement in their memory. So and this is in an older group of individuals. So that's the beauty of, you know, understanding how the body works and what makes it function. Once you understand that the body is something that has to function based on what you put into it, then you become more cognizant of what you're putting in your body so you can ensure your body's performing at the optimal level. Now, um, ultimately, um, this study looked at folks in the United States. Um, they looked at about 3,500 people, and uh, they were older than the age of 60. And they had them do simple games like learning to repeat words they saw in a computer program. It's kind of simple tricks to see how good their memory was. And they found that those who were on the multivitamin uh, per day had better performance in the memory tests than those who were not. So, and this has been done actually by other, a few other studies. One came out last year out of Harvard, had a similar um, result as far as people taking multivitamins, having improved and better memory, especially those who had cardiovascular disease, which is a big one because we know people who have cardiovascular um, issues like heart disease, heart attacks, um, are at also increased risk of strokes. And so those who are at risk of strokes or have strokes are at extremely high risk of long-term brain injury and brain um, malfunction like dementia and other neurological issues. So um, again, this study I think is something that in, just really stresses the importance of nutrition. And if you're someone who's not getting appropriate nutritional um, uh, intake because you're not eating enough fruits and vegetables or you're, you know, maybe doing some sort of other dietary restrictive issues, maybe supplementation would be uh, something you should consider, especially as you age, because we've seen that now multivitamin and nutrient supplementation can be helpful in reducing memory issues in especially elderly people. But I think even young people who are, you know, not getting those ideal fruits and vegetables or that proper dietary whole food diet that, you know, we stress here, maybe supplementation could be something to help kind of reduce those long-term risk of brain um, dysfunction. So again, multivitamins may be helpful in improving brain health and reducing brain age and improving memory, especially as we age. So moving on, um, there's a new recommendation from the World Health Organization, everyone's favorite group. I know we've had <laughs> a lot of things to say about the WHO, especially with the whole COVID thing and how they were really uh, kind of affecting people's lives. However, I think um, we can kind of see what else they're discussing. And one thing that caught my eye was a recent recommendation from the WHO that states that using artificial or non-sugar sweeteners, which are usually pushed as you know healthy alternatives to natural sugar or regular sugar, they found that these alternative sugars are national or non-sugar sweeteners do not have any long-term benefit in reducing body fat in adults or children. So people who are taking these, you know, artificial sweeteners in an effort to lose weight, it's showing now that these things simply do not work for that. You actually end up eating the same amount or more than those who are eating regular sugar. Um, now, why is this happening? People felt that these non-calorie, non-sugar sweeteners would be a great alternative to sugar because it helps, you know, reduce your calorie intake. At least that's what was believed. 
But what the reality is that it, it seems that people who are consuming these non-sugar sweeteners, um, they're actually having some potential undesirable effects, including increased risks of type 2 diabetes and heart disease. Um, now, the exact link is not really clear, but what they're seeing all over the long term is that those who are replacing natural sugar with artificial sweeteners, not only are they not losing weight, they're also getting increased levels of type 2 diabetes and heart disease. So it's pretty disturbing stuff when you think about it. And for me, you know, I've never really been an advocate of these artificial sweeteners. My thing is all about moderation as well as just really avoiding sugar altogether. Um, you know, people have been conditioned to love sugar and eat it regularly based on, you know, what they've been exposed to. TV, of course, is not helping and other potential media um, influencing, you know, their food choices. But ultimately, sugar in general has, I think, been a net negative on the human population. It's, I think, the biggest cause of obesity in general. And it has a lot of other hosts of illnesses that been associated with sugar, including diabetes, inflammation, stroke, all that stuff. So ultimately, and this is what I kind of push, is try to avoid sugar and sweet drinks altogether. If you're someone who, who really likes sweet items, you want to try natural sweeteners like agave syrup, um, raw honey. Um, there are some other items that are good, even just simple, you know, brown sugar or the unprocessed natural sugar is a good option as well. And it's moderation. So you want to make sure that, you know, you're doing things in moderation, not overdoing it because you have some perceived belief that it's healthy. So then you overindulge in it. Um, those can always usually lead in, uh, into some you know, unfortunate outcomes. So ultimately, sugar obviously is not the best thing and it's pro-inflammation. It has a lot of other side effects, but it does, you know, improve the taste of foods. So in my opinion, you want to reduce the amount of sugar you're ingesting. This will overall reduce your craving for sugar. And then in general, you want to try to introduce dessert, introduce fruits and vegetables. If you want something sweet, I guess in this case, more fruits, those will be more sweeter, but try to get natural sources of sweet things to get that sweet tooth um, satisfied, if you will. And ultimately, you just want to be careful with what you put in your body. So it's very important you check nutrition labels and see what's in there. They may say it's healthy or natural and it's yet some sort of natural artificial sweetener in there. So you just want to be careful. So ultimately, sugar, obviously we've talked about that quite a bit, that it has a lot of issues. However, when it comes to weight loss, it's better to use regular sugar and just do it in moderation versus going for the sugar or calorie-free sugar alternative, which can have a lot of issues that aren't really compatible with health and wellness over the long term. All right, guys, let's talk about weight loss. There's some cool, interesting weight loss um, things that have popped up on my feed, and I wanted to kind of talk about that as well with you guys. So the first thing I want to talk about was there's an interesting new treatment for obesity that's actually getting some popularity. Now, this is kind of being um, looked at by a group of uh, uh, clinicians, clinicians that are based out of Italy, Rome, Italy, to be specific. Um, Dr. Robert Ienka, who's from the clinical Nuova Villa Claudia, um, they're, they're, him and a few other researchers are trying a new way of potentially helping people with weight loss. They're actually encouraging people to try a swallowable gastric balloon, right? It's called the Illurion balloon. So, um, and then basically they have you swallow a balloon that you then 
that is then inflated in your stomach, right? So that gives your stomach this kind of fullness sensation. Then they combine that with a glucagon-like peptide or like all the things we've been discussing, of course, like the um, like the, um, the big popular pills like Ozimbic and Wagovi, all these glucagon-like peptides, which are designed to basically make you feel very full and just kill your, your hunger drive and all that. And they basically use this swallow the balloon with shots of these, um, what we call glucagon-like peptides. I'll just say GLP-1 um, agonists. And they combine those two and use them to see if they can help patients lose weight. Now, what they found was that when you do these two together, there was a pretty amazing weight loss result as opposed to them working by themselves. Now, usually these two things are rarely combined. It's, feel that, it's felt that the shot can provide enough feelings of fullness and satiety that that alone has been effective in helping people lose weight. But this group wanted to take it a step further and actually put a physical obstruction, which is a big balloon in the stomach, combined with the shots, which help reduce appetite. And um, yeah, they definitely got some good effects. Now, what they found was that the people who did this kind of treatment, and they did it for a period of about 16 weeks, um, and then after 16 weeks, the balloons were removed, but they continued for the shots for about four months. And so what they found was that those who did this, they actually had a mean reduction of their BMI Okay, their BMI was reduced about 6.4 kilograms per meters, or um, almost like a like 13 pounds. So, um, you know, pretty effective for those who, you know, were just kind of given this treatment and then they were allowed to do what they liked as far as eating. But they were encouraged to eat, you know, healthy Mediterranean-style foods and uh, low lower calorie. But of course, with these two things, the balloon in their stomach and the shots, they're going to be really, you know. They're going to have a much easier time not wanting to eat just because of those interventions. So ultimately, this definitely will work. Um, I can definitely say as someone who's, you know, been using the GLP agonist personally, um, I can definitely say that um, your appetite will be drastically reduced and you're going to definitely lose weight if you're someone who has a history of binge eating or overeating. Um, those, I think, GLP agonists can be very good at helping people who have those kind of issues eat less and ultimately lose weight. So yeah, so uh, the balloon thing is not really something that is done um, in America, but I think a lot of people do, you know, are looking into it as opposed to what we've done historically in America for weight loss um, prior to a lot of these new interventions has been surgeries and other very aggressive, um, you know, treatments. So I think this balloon uh, treatment can be something that hopefully if it gains more traction can be, I think, a great um, alternative as opposed to, you know, some of the other things that we're doing currently, like the extra gastric resections and other very, you know, aggressive and I think very invasive uh, ways to help, you know, treat overeating or treat obesity. The method has been one kind of, I think, different and unique way of helping people with weight loss, but the Japanese have developed actually another <laughs> method that they're using and they're saying it has been, um, been successful in um, their part of the woods. Now, I will say Japan is one of my favorite countries. They have a great culture. They have a lot of awesome things they do, and they actually have some of the longest life expectancies on, on the globe. So I think a lot of things they do can be something, things that we can all look at and maybe take from what we like and hopefully, you know, help aid our health and wellness um, 
journeys. However, this study that I found today looked at ear acupuncture. And so according to now, acupuncture is something that, you know, I'm not extremely familiar with, but, you know, it's been, it's a very popular modality used, especially in the Asian world where they use it for all sorts of, you know, treatments, especially for chronic issues. I've, I've heard it used for pain very effectively. And um, there's some acupuncturists who actually are very skilled in helping people with weight loss using acupuncture. So what what's typically done? Um, and again, I'm not an acupuncturist, so if you are out there and you, if I say something correct, please don't um, feel bad. Just reach out and we'll get it figured out. But ultimately, um, there's a belief that around the ear, there are certain stimulation points that can actually help reduce sensations of hunger and actually help regulate appetite and satiety and food cravings. So due to the understanding of the acupuncturist, there's some um, parts of the ear that when stimulated actually affect those areas that are linked to the stomach and linked to the appetite centers and linked to actually the brain's um, ability to regulate those centers. And so what they do is that they've been, um, you know, they took over a thousand people. This again took place in Japan, Dr. Takihiro Fujimoto, um, based out of Tokyo. And they, um, and they looked at people who, who underwent this acupuncture treatment for weight loss. And what they found is that, I guess, in their relatively group, they um, looked at a group of men, I think it was about 90 people, so relatively small. But they found that people who underwent this um, auricular acupuncture stimulation as well as dietary restriction. Now, remember, these people were also told to eat half of what they normally eat, just cut their meals in half for the next you know, few weeks, combined with this ear acupuncture, and they were gonna see you know, how they did. And they found that um, they had a weight loss of about nine kilograms, so about 18 pounds, about 20 pounds um, per person, you know, which is pretty impressive in my opinion. Um, especially if you're just doing acupuncture and just kind of dietary restriction. Now, most people would say, well, they could have just cut their diet without doing the ear thing and probably lost weight. Yes, that's, you're probably right. However, remember, if you're someone who's used to eating a certain amount and then you have to just cut it over, you know, all of a sudden you cut your intake in half, your body's going to have a, a pretty different reaction to that. It's going to probably make you want to eat more. It's going to stimulate those ways to make you overeat. It's because your body has a certain way it's been used to. So if you change it, it's going to be a little bit, you know, imbalanced. And so is there, maybe there's something to this acupuncture where when those hunger pains or any kind of thing that the body started reacting to the weight or the calorie restriction, there's a belief that the acupuncture can help reduce those those sensations and that can lead to weight loss because it helps the body deal with the cravings. So I personally was fascinated by this. I think ultimately acupuncture is something that, you know, in the Western world, we don't really look at that often for for treatment for certain illnesses. You know, I, I believe, though, there definitely is a place for it, especially when it comes to chronic um, conditions, especially when it comes to chronic pain and other issues that people have had trouble figuring out when it comes to you know the Western um, medical field. That being said, I think that uh, this study here, the only problem I have with it is that it was very small. 81 people actually between the ages of 21 to 78. So um, ultimately, you know, I think larger studies need to be done um, in this area. And hopefully that'll be done. Now, there was a previous study done also in Japan that looked at a women, and that was 1,300 people strong and they actually had a similar result as well they had a body loss 
body weight loss of 11% over three months. And it's just with acupuncture as well as dietary restriction. So ultimately, um, I think acupuncture is something that needs to be looked at. You know, we've talked about all the things that have been done so far from cutting out people's stomachs to um, various hormones to um, balloons you're swallowing now. And so there's obviously a very big desire to help people reduce cravings, reduce overeating. And I think if acupuncture is, is what's working, I think something needs to be further explored and hopefully that'll be done on a larger scale. All right, so back in the, to the Americas, you know, the big thing now that everyone's been very excited for are these glucagon-like peptide receptor medications like Ozimbic, um, which is something, again, I told you that I'm trying out as well. And ultimately, these things have become very popular. And as a result, you know, when Americans see a medication they like, the next thing is try to get the best price for it. And that usually happens ordering the medicine outside of the country. <laughs> So much so that Canada has now um, decided to uh, ban <laughs> non-Canadians from buying Ozempic, also known as semaglutide. So if you're someone who sees a doctor in America and then you want to get the medication after you get a prescription, but you go to your local pharmacy in the United States and it's over $1,000 for a, a prescription for this drug. However, in the great nation of Canada, the same drug only costs $250. So that's, you know, literally like a 75% less price. That being said, obviously many Americans are now going to Canada to get their Ozimbic so they can do their weight loss uh, treatment plans. Now, of course, there's been outrage from those who um, use the same medication for other ailments, especially people who suffer from diabetes. There was a big controversy about there being a um, scarcity in this medication for those who have diabetes who like to use the medication. Um, but the good news is that the manufacturing has been kicked up quite a bit. We actually talked about that on this show, about how millions and billions are being invested into factories to bake more of these um, GLP agonists. That's because of their effectiveness and their popularity. So ultimately, I think those arguments as far as scarcity are gonna be short-lived. However, um, these drugs are becoming a really hot commodity. There was one um, clinician actually that was cited um, practicing in Texas, but who had a license in Canada and was writing scripts. He wrote over 17,000 scripts in a three month period. And they were all filled at two Canadian pharmacies. And so they saw that this was about 15% of all prescriptions filled for this area in Canada of specifically British Columbia. And ultimately they felt that uh, there were too many Americans, you know, taking the drug out from their, you know, location, which they felt would be harmful to their citizens. And so this area in Canada, specifically British Columbia, uh, one of the provinces in Canada, they banned non-Americans from getting this Ozempic. Now it just shows kind of all the, the kind of the hype around this drug and the funny thing is, despite, you know, Ozempic being targeted, you know, these people can also still order narcotics and other harmful drugs <laughs> with no problem. So it's really kind of interesting how Ozempic becomes, you know, kind of the, the focus for a lot of these regulators, as well as a lot of these other, you know, individuals looking to kind of attack um, use of this drug. 
Uh, personally, I think that's a good option for those who are not interested in surgery. I think the cost is definitely very high. And I, I do believe that, you know, more needs to be done to help reduce the cost. And there's no reason why this drug should cost 1000 here in America and 250 in Canada when it's the same exact drug. And it's another case of pharmaceutical companies exploiting American um, citizens uh, for profit. And that's just my opinion. So, <laughs> But ultimately, um, yeah, interesting story there. Ozimbic, again, something I actually recommend for those who are interested, but it depends on if you're the right fit for it. But those, you know, who are um, interested in using that, obviously reach out to your, to your clinician. You can also reach out to us if you're someone who doesn't have one. And we can talk to you more about it. But ultimately, its popularity is causing some headaches. And uh, this is just one of many examples to come. Talk about cannabis briefly here. Um, new study has really kind of come out, very powerful study out of Canada, showing that cannabinoid-based medications may help clinicians offer a effective and less addictive alternative to opioids uh, when it comes to chronic non-cancer pain and other comorbid issues. So um, that's one thing that, um, especially in my practice, I've seen is that you know people who have chronic conditions, especially when it comes to chronic pain, um, cannabis has been, I think, something that needs to be looked at closer to really this, this determine if there is a benefit when it comes to you know reducing the dependency on narcotics which you know are very deadly you have over 100,000 people a year dying from opiate overdoses and it's it's very very kind of disconcerting out here we're going to talk about more about these overdoses and how some of the healthcare policies are being changed as well to help address those addicted to opiates but cannabis has been felt to be something that could potentially be one of those things and so a study came out of Canada that looked at um, actually other studies. So it's more of an observational study looking at other studies that were done previously. And they were trying to develop recommendations to help treat chronic pain. And so they looked at patients who are in chronic pain, who have chronic pain conditions. And um, they were also studied previously. And they found over 11,000 patients that fit their criteria. And so these patients had been looked at in other studies where they were actually using opiates and cannabis and trying to see how patients did if you, when using one versus the two together um, and seeing how they were dealing with the pain as a result. And so out of all the studies that they looked at that had already studied the use of cannabis in treatment of chronic pain, it was found that 38 out of the 47 studies demonstrated that cannabis had at least moderate benefits for chronic pain resulting in a strong recommendation by the clinicians who were giving it and looking at the patients they were treating. And so it just shows that, you know, cannabis when used with opiates can be in a very effective pain management and much safer than just increasing the opiate levels because we know that opiates when given at higher doses can, can be very deadly because they essentially can shut down your drive to breathe, which obviously is not compatible with life. So um, ultimately, um, again, this is something that really has to be um, personalized, in my opinion. That's why I think working with a pain management specialist, which is something we do as well at the Health is Wealth Wellness Clinic, which you can also find online very soon. And it shows that those who are you know, having chronic issues with pain, when combined with cannabis, can actually reduce the use of both medications. And over time, they have a longer term improvement in their pain, especially their chronic pain conditions. So again, this is out of Canada. I'm pretty sure as more of the states here in the United States legalize cannabis use for medical, especially, you're going to see a lot more of these studies being done here in America as well to look at the true benefits. And so, and there's also a stress the importance of 
you know, the importance of, you know, clean, you know, regulated cannabis operations that allow patients to get access to, you know, clean cannabis, not potentially tainted or filled with chemicals that you see a lot of people consuming, especially in the illicit market. So, um, again, cannabis may be, actually is effective for pain management, especially in a chronic pain setting. All right, guys, so moving on, there's another interesting study that came across my desk, and this kind of kind of intrigued me a bit because it looks at two things that we really don't think about as far as being linked, but potentially there is an association there that needs to be closely investigated. And this is potential the link of colon cancer and appendicitis. So what a new study out of France showed that people who were diagnosed with appendicitis had a significant increase in the risk of colon cancer later in life. So what they found was that um, patients, um, you know, who had appendicitis, who were reported appendicitis or were treated for it, either via surgery, usually surgery, that's usually the universal way it's, it's treated. But they found that um, those who developed colon cancer, I'm sorry, those who developed, who were treated for appendicitis, um, really essentially had essentially had a four-fold increase in the rate of diagnosis of colon cancer. So pretty shocking. And um, also patients who had appendicitis who were younger than 40 had about a six-fold risk of having colon cancer within a year. Um, so this is pretty crazy. Now, this is, this is to go back. This study came out of France, um, and they looked at those um, who... Um, match the criteria as far as having acute appendicitis between the ages of 18 and 59. Um, and they found that, um, again, there was a f- fourfold increase in those who had appendicitis, sorry, fourfold, fourfold increase in cancer diagnosis in those who were treated for appendicitis compared to those who were not. Also, they found that those who were younger and had appendicitis also had a Six-fold increase of colon cancer within a year, as far as you know, these study this study looked at. Now, this study had a pretty large database. They looked at the French Hospital Discharge Database. So they looked at 230,000 people who matched the acute appendicitis uh, picture, and um, and this is compared to other controls who had no appendicitis. And again, they found this link between appendicitis and colon cancer. So overall, again, just to go over the numbers, 111 patients were diagnosed with colon cancer within a year of having appendicitis. And this was, again, uh, far greater than those compared to those who did not have history of appendicitis. And uh, and it's kind of really... Now, this one thing about the study, they don't really try to explain the linkage or why these things could be occurring. They just say, this is what we're seeing. More needs to be done. And I agree. Um, the appendicitis believed to be an infection of the appendix, um, you know, somehow maybe resulting or somehow linked with the presence of potential cancer in the colon itself. And, you know, it's ever, always been a mystery, the importance of the appendix or what it's for. Hence the reason why it's usually cut out pretty routinely if there's a concern. But maybe there's something going on there where potentially appendicitis is helping either, pre- the appendix is actually helping to prevent cancer in the colon, or it could be an early warning sign of something going on in the colon. Either way, I think more work needs to be done as far as the appendix and this potential link to colon cancer that's being exposed here. Guys, and here we go for the final study that uh, really kind of interested me and may actually kind of affect a lot of our behaviors is mobile phones. There's now a new potential link 
between cell phone use and hypertension. And this is something that again was recently presented after researchers looked at the UK Biobank to see kind of, you know, if there was association. Now, what they found was that people who make or receive calls for just 30 minutes a week, 30 minutes a week, guys, have an associated with an in, are associated with an increased risk of developing hypertension. Now, to me, that's almost everybody on the earth at this point. I mean, this is 2023. Cell phones are essentially everywhere. I would hard, you'd be hard pressed, in my opinion, to find someone who's not used a cell phone for more, for less than 30 minutes a week. So I don't know how they were able to kind of figure this out as far as figure out who has not. But what they found was that looking at, again, this UK Biobank, by the way, they look at everyone who's been hospitalized in the UK health system. They look at all their kind of issues and determine, you know, I guess who they like based on, you know, previous visits to the hospitals in the UK. So I guess they found out those who <laughs> were using cell phones, which I think would be everybody. But either way, what they found was that those who spent a half hour per week had a 12% increased risk of developing hypertension, while those who spent six hours weekly had a 25% increased risk. So a lot, you know, basically they're saying there's increased risk of blood pressure elevation with increased use of cell phones. So, um, you know, ultimately they believe that because of the low levels of radio frequency energy um, that's being emitted by the phones, it could be also increasing blood pressure on a short-term basis. So they're, you know, they're saying that could be something going on with the waves the phones emit and potentially affecting the body's cardiovascular system. And again, this just to go over the numbers, uh, it was Dr. Qu Dr. Quinn, um, MD, PhD, out of China. Now, they did look at UK data, but they actually were a Chinese group. And they, the study size was pretty impressive, 212,000 adults, so quite a nice size. And um, they were able to determine that based on this data. Now, what they did reveal, and this one thing I will say, again, most of the people who were in the study were all mobile phone users, 88% of participants, actually. So, you know, ultimately, the argument could be made that, okay, you know, there's not enough people in the non-cell phone use group to really determine if there is a true difference because the people who didn't use cell phones also still develop hypertension, but they argue that those who use cell phones were a larger group, but again, they are the vast majority of the participants. So ultimately, um, you know, I'm, this study is kind of interesting, kind of came across my desk, not too convinced that it's truly um, the case, especially because it was a retrospective study, meaning they, meaning they went back, they didn't actually follow people going forward. And who knows, maybe more info will be obtained in this area, but at the end of the day, cell phone use, cell phones are everywhere now. I do encourage people to use, you know, wired or some sort of um, earpiece or, you know, headphones to help reduce, you know, the radioactive or the radioactive radio waves that the phone emits, because there's always been concerns about those causing long-term health risks. But overall, um, there really is no, I think, clear correlation yet but this is an interesting study, and I think we'll be continuing to monitor as far as some of the issues, as far as cell phone-related problems that could be there. And I think blood pressure is a big issue, so I think looking at all the potential concerns or causes of that is important. So I'm going to keep following this. But again, I wouldn't say throw your cell phones out just yet. I'm not convinced this is truly um, the case, but we will keep monitoring. All right, guys, so ultimately, you know, we've um, tried to bring you some of the more interesting stories that came across um, the desk here today. Hopefully, you know, there's something cool that you guys took away from it. If there's anything you want me to talk about specifically, though, please reach out, guys. Send me an email. Hit me up on Twitter, Dr. Barry Tech Doc, or Instagram, 
at Dr. Barry MD. Also on LinkedIn as well, and pretty much most of the social media. You just type in Dr. Barry, usually I'll pop up. Anyways, guys, I am done for the day. Hopefully, we get um, more exciting content to present to you next week. At the end of the day, though, we're going to keep pushing and keep providing those exciting stories that you guys have come to know and love. Either way, I'm out. Thanks, guys. Thanks a lot for listening. Till we, till we meet again.